Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Jamie Allen, and I'm the associate curator at the, in the Department of Photography here at George Eastman Museum. And I'm pleased to welcome you today to this Focus 45 talk. Um, today I'll be speaking about the current history of photography rotation that's up in the galleries. It opened last weekend, and it's on view until April 1st of 2018. Earlier it said 2019. Not up that long. <laughs> So before I get into the exhibition, um, these are two ex uh, objects that are in the exhibition, but before I get into that, I just thought that maybe I'd point out um, a little bit of information about how we put titles on our labels, um, just kind of to demystify that a little bit for some of our visitors. So typical museum practice is that an italicized title is a title given by the maker. Um, and in our museum, we also use italicized titles for things that didn't have titles, but are a picture of somebody. Um, and we know who that person is, so we would italicize their name. So that's typically for something like a snapshot or carte de visite where we know the sitter's name. For titles that aren't in italics, and some institutions will put brackets around those as well, those are descriptive titles. That's something assigned by our museum, the person who cataloged that object. Um, that's because there is no title. It's a, maybe it's a vernacular thing, like this boy with a stereo viewer. We don't know who he is. But we need to be able to identify that thing in some way for um, ourselves and for our visitors. Um, and it might be something that just lacks a title or where we've done a lot of research and can't come up with a title in some way. So hopefully that demystifies the label copy a little bit. But so italicized is something assigned by the maker or something more proper like a name, while a, just a Roman title is a descriptive title. So for my history of photography rotation, um, I have lots of different ideas of where I might want to go with it. And what I ended up choosing was um, kind of photographs that speak about photography in some way. So this journey started with a, a location that we had in our vault called FIFEM. It's a totally made up word. It's a, an abbreviation for photographic ephemera. So pictures that somehow showed photography in some way. It might be a picture of a photographer with their camera, like this one. It might be a picture of a piece of photographic equipment. We'll see a few examples. It might be a picture of somebody taking a photograph. Um, so things that spoke about photography in some way. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. What does photography tell us about photography and the people who use photography and what the equipment looks like over time? So another good example of that is this um, photographic postcard. It's a real photo postcard. Um, and you'll notice the girls have an album, a photo album with them in the picture. And in my thoughts, this probably is because that photo album makes it a little bit more homey, like that might be what they're doing at home anyway, is looking at photos. Um, but also in a, in a studio setting, it might kind of put the girls at ease, give them something to do while the photographer's setting up the camera, setting up the lighting, and then when it's time to take the picture, it just kind of remains. This one's also really great, you'll see in the exhibition, it's got some hand coloring and glitter. <laughs> so seeing those little bits of, of kind of photo things in photographs, uh, made me think about what other kinds of photographic equipment appear in photographs. And so um, things like this Francis Brugere image, um, where he's set up in his studio, the still life, and he's including all these bits of his equipment. So there's a 35 millimeter camera, there's another camera, 
you've got this like bottles and chemistry going on. So in a way to me, this is kind of becomes a self-portrait of him in his photographic practice. But he was really better known um, both as a commercial photographer and for these cut paper abstractions that he did. So he's known for lots of different things. So during the day, he was a very well-known commercial photographer. But in his own time, he really experimented with what photography could do, like these cut paper abstractions that you see on the left. The item on the right is sort of a mixture of cut paper abstraction and multiple exposure photography. And that's actually a negative in our collection, and it currently looks like a negative. I'm going to turn it magically digitally into a positive for you. Um, so that's a self-portrait of him. And when I saw this thing in our, our system, I got super excited. Maybe we have the print, because um, I thought it was a really interesting concept that he'd be combining his own image with his cut paper abstractions. Lo and behold, we don't own a print of it. But it did make me think about how he used multiple exposure in his commercial practice. Um, so on the left, you know, well on the right he's experimenting with it, and on the left he's actually using it to evoke some sort of emotional um, outpouring that he's getting from a theater portrait that he's making. Um, so he's he's making portraits to portray the characters in theater plays, um, and somehow that multiple exposure kind of helps heighten that emotion. Jamie, can I ask a question? Sure. On the one on the right, which was a negative. And then you made the, turned it around to show us the image. Then you said, we don't have a print of it. Why don't you make a print of it? Because the prints in our collection are made by the photographers. That's a really very specific thing that's very important about the objects in our collection is who made them. And if we make it, um, it's, it, we don't know that he even wanted to print this negative. We don't know that there's extant prints of it somewhere. Um, and how would he interpret it, that negative? How would he have, he have printed it? Would he have made parts of it darker or lighter? Would he have used specific kinds of paper? Um, and maybe he would have selected not to print it at all. So we don't want to be the interpreters of that. We want to let the photographers interpret their own work. And so if something doesn't exist, we don't make it. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. So thinking about um, other ways that photographic equipment came into play, um, there's this picture of Nicholas Mariah in our collection, um, and it's a self-portrait. And I thought it was really interesting. He's wearing his lab coat, um, he's got his glasses in his hand, and he's holding this color checker chart. And that color checker chart's really specific to what he's doing at that time period. He's a commercial photographer making color images for mostly advertisements and magazines, so all the popular picture magazines that you uh, would have seen at the time. So, by no means am I gonna hit on every aspect of what the Carborough process is, but just to give you a quick idea of how complex it was and why it wasn't prevalent. Um, so you would have started off with a camera that made three negatives at the same time. There was a prism that split the light, and each of those negatives had some sort of color filter in front of them. So that might be a red one, a green one, and a blue one. Not might, it was a red, green, and blue. With that, you ended up with three negatives that showed just a portion of the color spectrum of the image. So then each of those negatives corresponded to a positive image that would have been made. And those positive images um, were basically, and again, this is where I'm glossing over a lot of what happens in the process. Um, those, those positive images were made on a sheet of gelatin tissue 
that had pigment in it. And the pigment was either yellow, magenta, or cyan. So um, in the sense, the blue record of light in the negative would have made that yellow image. The green record of light would have made the magenta image. And that red record of light made the cyan or blue-green image. The print would have then been all these layers of tissue very carefully piled on top of each other, red, yellow, and green, to make a positive full color image. It's a very specific kind of color because of the pigments that were used at that time, but it's the magic of color. So Marais purposefully including this element in his self-portrait. Um, there's no evidence that we would have cropped it out. He printed this image with himself, with the color checker chart. Um, so it's very purposeful. He's identifying himself and his photographic practice in some way. So it really describes how a photographer is describing themselves as a photographer. Um, but what other indicators were there that, that photographers might use to tell the viewer that it was a picture of themselves? Do they always identify themselves as a photographer, or sometimes are they identifying as something else in the picture? And then that made me also think about what are the tropes of self-portraiture? What are the cliches that um, people use over and over again in order to image themselves? So that was another element I added in. And then, of course, self-portraiture um, is particularly apropos at this moment in time because society is experiencing what I might term the selfie epidemic. Um, so, so what is a self-portrait and how is that different from a selfie? How is the history of photography and the self-portraiture in photography reflected in this element of contemporary culture? How has the self-portrait worked to influence how selfies are made? So a selfie is a very specific kind of self-portrait. It's made by using a device like your cell phone camera. Um, and then it's intended to be displayed on social media, so Facebook, Instagram. Uh, while all selfies are self-portraits, not all self-portraits are selfies. So you have to keep that in mind as we go through. Um, and I would argue that there are no selfies in our exhibition. Something to think about when you go through. So in general, um, all the things that I selected for this exhibition had to do with these kind of devices. What photographic elements are in the picture and how have we pictured photography in photographs? So photographic equipment has really changed drastically over time. It didn't used to be a cell phone in your pocket. Um, and in the wet plate era, photographers were carrying around pounds of equipment. They were carrying around typically multiple cameras, a, a large plate camera as well as a stereo camera. They were carrying around their chemistry. They were carrying around basically a portable dark room. So that's what you're seeing in this picture. And that's exactly what we see in this photograph by Francis Fripp. That's his portable dark room, um, parked in front of Ely Cathedral in England. Just to make it a little easier for you to see, I'm going to show you a detail of that. So in the 10 years after Francis Frith started photographing, he was pretty busy. He became interested in photography and then made a series of images around Great Britain, became a founding member of the Liverpool Photographic Society. He took hundreds of images during three trips to the Middle East, again, in 10 years, um, produced nine publications featuring selections from those trips, and established a photographic firm called Francis Frith & Company. So, he just did a little bit in that 10 years. Um, in the journals of his time, his images were sometimes compared to paintings, 
which is quite interesting. And in particular, the Times stated that they, quote, carry us far beyond anything that is in the power of the most accomplished artist to transfer to his canvas. So in a sense, photography is much more truthful and easier rendered than painting. Frith himself also spoke about his photography. And in the introduction to his book um, that he published in 1860, it was called Cairo, Sinai, Jerusalem, and the Pyramids of Egypt. He writes, a truth, oh, sorry, quote, a truthful record is more value than the most elaborately beautiful picture. And I find that statement really interesting because this is a very truthful record. It tells us what it was like to be a photographer working in the field during the wet plate era. We have the portable dark room. We have little pieces of the equipment. There's a little box down here, maybe a tub for water. So all that is very truthful. But as I was trying to research this image and find out more about it, I was looking through the catalogs that Francis Frith and company put out. And the negative number associated with this image doesn't appear in them. So it wasn't really something that was popularly purchased at the time or even that they were offering for purchase. Um, so in a way, we're very lucky to have this kind of evidence of what the working um, aspects of being a photographer were. No, this was in the Francis Frith box, and I had seen it while I was looking for something else for another purpose. I'm always kind of making lists of what I see and putting ideas together. So another legacy that could have easily been lost from our culture is the history of map making during the Civil War. Um, and that's because maps were made by hand, and once they were used, once their usefulness was kind of done, they'd get burned. Or because people were afraid that they'd fall into enemy hands, they'd get burned. Um, so they'd just kind of destroy them as they went along during the battles. But photography plays a really important role in map making as well, because in order to distribute hand-drawn maps, uh, they used photography in two ways to distribute the, the images to various units. So this picture that's in the exhibition is of um, probably union-associated photographers copying maps. I'm going to blow it up again for you so that you can really see the equipment as I talk about it. So there's two main ways that maps were being made at that time. And I'm not purporting that this is showing both, but I'm just going to use it as an example. So here you see a copy camera, and it's pointing towards a map that's on the board and taking an image of that, which would have been a negative. And then that negative would have been sandwiched with sensitized paper, placed into a printing frame, and made into a positive image that then would have been distributed. So that would have looked like probably black lines on a white piece of paper. The other way um, that they made maps during this era was to use the hand-drawn map itself as a negative. And so that hand-drawn map would have just been placed in, in contact with sensitized paper, put into a printing frame, and printed that way. And that would have looked like a black landscape with white lines. So those were the two main ways that maps were made during the Civil War. It's interesting that we have this picture because it was such an important part of what was going on that this photographer, who's now unidentified, um, felt it really worthy as a subject of photography itself. But shortly after the Civil War, references to photography are everywhere in uh, the kind of commonplace <coughs> types of objects that are about. So carte de visite, cabinet cards, and stereo views. In this image, the viewer becomes part of the crowd at a, a presentation ceremony for Admiral George Dewey. 
And Dewey's um, commanding victory at Manila Bay on May 1st of 1898, so over a year prior, had ended the Spanish-American War. Um, it was concluded basically in less than three months because of his victory. So everybody really thought him a, a very worthy hero. Um, I'll note that while it ended the war, um, there was a lot of activity that still went on through December of that year when the treaty was actually signed. But for most scholars, when I was reading, uh, his victory is kind of that turning point or the ending point of the war. So essentially, they threw him a very big party parades, dinners, um, the treaties of like what's going on and how they've planned this for a year um, is really amazing to read. It's at the University of Rochester. But as we're part of the crowd, what I find interesting is that the photographers are there at the front of the crowd. Right? Here we have photojournalism um, happening, and they're up on these really kind of crazy ladders. The one guy's standing on the top of the ladder, balancing there probably with his stereo camera. So this picture I did find in the FIFEM drawer, the photographic ephemera drawer, and it made me think, what did their pictures look like? Here's these photographers, but what did they, what were they taking? What was the result? And were they popular images too? And I found some. So I basically dug through our, um, our drawers of stereo views until I found something. And I actually ended up finding three uh, stereos and I put two in the exhibition. Um, this is one of them. But I think it's really interesting because now as I look at that frame and I keep, I keep looking back and forth, I'm like, well, which guy is taking this picture? So I can keep thinking about angles a little bit. Uh, so by the end of the 20th century, Kodak had really figured out that if they included pictures of people taking pictures in their advertising, that was going to sell their products. So to do that even more so, they created these contests where they asked photographers to put in pictures of people. And I'm just gonna read you the first, um, the first rule in the 1910 contest. Each picture is to contain a figure or figures and is to be suitable for use as an illustration in advertising the Kodak or the Kodak system of amateur photography. So in a sense, they want you to take a picture of somebody using their product so that they can use it in their advertising. Whoever won the competitions, their photographs stayed. They were given a little prize money, and Kodak used those pictures. But they would also kind of select other pictures that didn't win the contest and keep those and pay those photographers a small sum as well in order to use their photos in advertising. Um, the, co the contests themselves were both for amateur and professional photographers. And it was really something that a lot of people participated in. And Gertrude Casebeer, who by this point is a very well-known photographer, she's known in all the major photographic circles, she has her own studio, and she's really an advocate for women photographers um, at that era. So she participates in these. And the image that you see here is the one in the exhibition, but it's a variant of the one that she submitted to the 1910 competition that won. So I was able to find a picture of that in one of the journals in our library. So this is the one that won the competition. Um, and what it, you see is her daughter, Hermine, um, teaching Gertrude Casebeer's grandchildren how to use photography. And I think it's really interesting that in this one, you know, it's very much so the mother passing down that tradition to the child is what's evident in it. Um, where in the other one, 
if I can back up. The other one's a little bit more formal in nature and is what she, she decided to print as an artistic image. Well, this is what she submitted to the competition for Kodak to use in advertising. So even she kind of takes two images that are used very differently. Seeing photographs of people photographing um, and taking photographs is not limited to advertising. In this case, this is a contact sheet with images of Margaret Burke White um, working in an active war zone. Uh, she was the first female war correspondent, and she worked in active war zones, um, photographing simultaneously for Life magazine as well as the, U the United States Air Force. Um, and she worked during World War II um, for both of those entities. Her images regularly appeared in Life magazine, and um, they typically appeared with a picture of her on location. So I think it's interesting that here she is making photographs of herself. This is probably one of the better known images of herself. It's her in her, um, in her, air re her uh, flight regalia, if you will. And I just want you to note the, the camera that she's got there. It's an aerial camera with an aerial lens. It's a big lens, really big lens. So um, she was one of the, she was the first uh, female war correspondent to also be allowed to participate in air bombing raids. So we have her aerial images of those bombing raids. As well as um, she documented the Air Force troops in Northern Africa, uh, engineering maneuvers in Italy, that's probably what we're seeing here as they're building a bridge. And um, she also photographed prisoners of war at the end of um, the war, people who were in concentration camps, very moving images. And Gandhi, yes. Um, Burke White once said, and I think this is a very telling quote, that, quote, using a camera was almost a relief. It interposed a slight barrier between myself and the horror in front of me, end quote. I think that gives us a very good idea of the horrors that she experienced and photographed. But there's something odd to me about this contact sheet, and that's that she, how's she pushing the button? How's she taking that image? Is somebody else taking that image for her? Did she set up some sort of timer? Um, so that really got me thinking about self-portraiture and all the different ways that we are able to take pictures of ourselves. So what I discovered are those common tropes or ways that people take their own image. And one is using a mirror or a reflection in a window. Um, so this Lee Friedlander that's in the exhibition is a really good example. And he uses very regularly both um, reflections and mirrors as well as uh, other devices. Sometimes it might be including your own shadow. And I know some people have, have problems seeing the shadow here. So that's Anne Brickman's shadow in the middle. This is a little bit late in her working practice and really is a nice kind of uh, modernist image for somebody who's really known as a pictorialist. Another possibility is to use a cable release. And if you're not familiar with what that is, essentially it's a bulb that sends air through a cable to a little trigger that would then trigger the shutter of the camera. And so Sinquan Chi is actually holding that here. You see the cord kind of coming out of his hand. Um, and in his series where he's dressing up as this character that's come to be known as the ambiguous ambassador, um, Sinquan Chi is taking on this role of kind of a communist ambassador and going to different locations and imaging himself. Um, so he's, he's always using that uh, cable release uh, sometimes he's jumping in the air and it's really evident and sometimes it's a little bit more hidden in the landscape. And then of course there's always just 
holding up the camera in front of oneself, um, like these ladies did. And I love this little snapshot. This is really big compared to the real thing. Um, but they've actually written on it. We just held up the camera in front of ourselves. <laughs> Duh. Um, what I also love about this is that they're referring to somebody else who's not there. So we've got Midge, Sue, and Minnie. Is that referring to that chair in the background? Um, I'm not sure what it's referring to, but there's something else going on there too. Something they're commemorating. So of course in the, in the 19th century, you couldn't just simply hold up the camera and take a picture of yourself. I think this New York Times uh, cartoon really kind of illustrates that. That would have been heavy. Uh, so often photographers had other photographers make their pictures. Uh, in this case, we have a likeness of William Henry Fox Talbot, taken by John Moffat. And this is probably one of the best known images of Fox Talbot, but it's definitely not the only one that was made. Moffat had first met Talbot at a gathering of the Scottish Photographic Society in 1864. And at that event, Moffat made this uh, image, which is called, quote, the first photograph taken in public in Scotland by the light of burning magnesium wire. Um, so basically, they, there had been a paper delivered on use of magnesium wire as a flash, essentially, um, as a way to light an interior. And so uh, Moffat was assigned the role of testing it out at this, as this conference. Um, so he did. He used the magnesium wire, but despite that, this took 42 seconds um, of exposure time, which is probably why uh, David Brewster and Fox Talbot are kind of leaning against each other. But after, um, after Moffat got to meet Talbot at that event, he writes to him and says, let me photograph you, come to my studio. And, and Talbot actually takes him up on that. And they take several images, including the three that you see here. Uh, the one on the left is the representation of what you'll see in the exhibition. Um, the same image, but we have a different object. But that particular image is used in a multitude of ways, and this is probably why it becomes so well known. So it's distributed as carte de visite, as you see on the left, little small kind of uh, images. It's also distributed as a photogravure by um, Paul Dujardin. Uh, it's also distributed as part, sorry, distributed as part of an engraving that's published in the Practical Photographer, which is what you see on the right. And I just wanted to show you that because it's kind of a fantastic thing. Um, so this is the fathers of photography. So Talbot's up here at the top. You've got Daguerre and Nieps um, and a lot of other guys. That if you know what all these people did, you're really good at photographic history. Um, some of them, I'm, like, I'm still scratching my brain to remember what, what contribution they had. So our image of Talbot, which you see here on the left, um, was printed much later as a carbon print. Um, and it's definitely not the only image of Talbot that is, is in existence. And so the one on the right is by an unidentified photographer. It's not by John Moffat. Um, but I think it's interesting that these two images, there's elements of both of them that kind of come into play in a contemporary photographer's work. And that's Jillian Waring. So on the right, you have Jillian Waring's image. And on the left, you have a historic image of Talbot. And I think hopefully you can see her influence, her, her kind of bringing over the concept from that image. Um, Waring is really known for 
taking on the identities of other people, donning a mask, donning clothes, and then photographing herself as that individual. So she's photographed herself as her um, various members of her family, which you might have seen in our exhibition, The Gender Show. There was a picture of her as her brother, um, as well as her younger self. Uh, in this particular series, oh, before I say this, let me just point out that in her pictures, the tell is often right around the eyes. So I wanted to give you a blow up of that so you could see where the mask sort of meets her face and, and kind of uncovers that there's somebody else underneath there staring at you. Um, in this series, which is me as, so in this case, me as Fox Talbot, um, she transforms into members of what she terms her spiritual family. So the artists and photographers who have inspired her. So basically, she's, she's identifying herself in the history of photography and the, the family that she draws from. I also just want to point out that I very much see the green frame on this image, which is, which is Jillian Waring's choice, not my choice. Um, so Jillian Waring chose that frame, and I think that's, that's her telling us there's something different here. This is a contemporary thing, and when you look at it, you think, oh, it's just a portrait of somebody. Um, you know, it's, oh, it's Fox Talbot, whatever. But then you see that green frame and your brain kind of goes, there's something different going on here and it forces you to look a little closer. Um, so I think that's, that's very much so part of her piece. So Waring is certainly not the first person to have dressed up for the camera. In fact, there's a very long history of that. Um, and in the exhibition, there's four daguerreotype stereo views of a photographer named Warren Thompson. They're all self-portraits. Thompson was born in the United States and established his photographic practice in Pennsylvania. Um, and then he moves to Paris and never returns. He stays in Paris for the rest of his life. In each of the daguerreotypes, he's performing some aspect of himself or common identities of the time. So in the one that you're seeing on the screen right now, he's the artist. Warren's really a master of setting up an image for a stereo view. And so I wanted to show, um, so show you this a little larger, if you will. But when you go to the exhibition, use the handheld viewer and look at it and really get it to come into play. Um, there's a couple of things you might notice. He's got a camera down here. This is a stereo viewer. So you would have pushed the stereo view in here. It would have also allowed for transparent uh, stereo views, ones that needed light to come through them. Um, but in particular, there's this great mirror with a um, statue reflecting in it. So you kind of see both sides of that statue. But all the elements of his image, he's really setting it up so it's three-dimensional. Um, stereo photography was not the only thing that, that uh, Thompson was very good at. He actually was also known for inventing a process and getting a patent for adding color to daguerreotypes. Um, he had gotten that patent before he left the United States and he gives it to another photographer when he leaves and moves to Paris. But um, I think that this is a nice comparison. So the, the one on the left is in the exhibition, it's half of the stereo pair, and it's him as a hunter. Uh, and the Getty holds another stereo pair of him as the hunter as well, um, but in color. So I can't can't purport to know how he adds color to images, but I think this gives us a good idea of what his color practice would have looked like. But I also think these are interesting for another reason, which is how he's changed the images. So his boutonniere jumps to the other side. There's a plant added in this one that's not in this one. 
he's got everything very neatly laid out in the one that we have. And then also, the gun moves. Um, so I don't know which one came first, it's a little chicken and the egg, but, or why that one's got color and the other one doesn't. But I, I would like to say that ours has a really nice triangular composition. So being an innovator um, and an inventor was very much so part of being a photographer in the 19th century. And Louis Duco du Huron um, definitely is one of those innovators, movers and shakers. He's best known perhaps for inventing one of the earliest ways of making a color photograph and assembling it, kind of like we were talking with the Carborough, a much earlier process for that that didn't take off because it was very complex, but showed that it was possible. Um, in this case, he's doing some optical experiments that come to be known as, um, he calls them photographie transformiste, uh, or transformation photography in English. Um, and these become kind of key to his practice. So here, and again, I'm going to simplify things quite a bit, but here he's making his own camera that has two uh, slits that slide over the aperture. And depending upon how those slits slide in different ways, during the exposure, it elongates the form of whatever it's photographing. Basically, it morphs the image. His technique was discussed in a 19, or sorry, 1895 book called Photographic Amusements. Um, and it's really interesting what it's alongside. It's alongside in the chapter called Character Photographs. So it includes what we think of typically as characters where you might um, have a board and stick your head behind it, and then you'd have a tiny body and big head, um, kind of the precursor to people drawing your image on a pier. It also includes um, just basically tilting the photographic plane inside the camera so that your figure is elongated or shortened in some way. And then you see his photographic process very cursorily um, explained on the other page. And our collection is really fortunate to have a, an amazing selection of these, thanks to the collector Gabriel Cromer, whose collection came to us through Kodak, um, and is one of the kind of three founding collections in our, in our uh, museum. And um, my colleague Heather Shannon's currently working on a book and exhibition project about Gabriel Cromer and his collecting practice, so I would expect that you'd probably see these again in a couple of years. So Duco du Huron's process is influential in a couple of more modern day techniques, one of which is the panorama function in your cell phone camera. Um, that is building on that same technique. The other is the wide lux camera. And basically the wide lux camera has a 26 millimeter lens hidden in here. And then it has a slit, and I'm going to show you a little video or a little gif. Um, it has a slit that basically goes over that aperture while it's exposing. It makes about a 140 degree angle in the picture, so slightly, um, slightly skewed for the way that we see, typically. Is that the thing Jeff Bridges uses? Yes. <laughs> Ding. Ding. You get the prize for today. Um, so Jeff. Take me on the road with you. Yeah, this is good. Thanks, Jack. Um, so Jeff Bridges uses the wide lux camera. Uh, and our collection has a few examples of his work. This is not one of them. So one of the things he does with the wide lux is because there's time for that slit to pass over the aperture, he can cover up half of it and take one ex 
one exposure and then cover up the other half and take another exposure. So he can make these kind of what he calls um, tragedy comedy portraits of his fellow actors. So here we have Matt Damon on the set of True Grit. I should have asked you if you could identify the film. Well, let me tell you, he, uh, when I was working full time as a critic, what Jeff always did was Jeff would shoot every one of the films he was on. And he would, he would make books that were like limitedly produced and he would give them to critics and people around the time of the film, and then eventually put them into volumes that I think we sold here at the museum. Yeah, and he, he has all of those different um, right. kind of books on his website as well. But it's it was, really yeah, fun it to was, look through. It was always a great little treat to get the latest Jeff book whenever he made a movie. Yeah. So the image that's in the exhibition is from the, um, the film Blown Away, and it shows him and his father. So in this case, he's just holding up the camera in front of himself. Um, but it's cool too because we get a little glimpse of Mary Ellen Mark here in the background also taking a photograph. I um, didn't try to look through and see what that photograph looked like. I'm pretty certain we don't have that photograph in our collection. What Mary Ellen Mark's photograph of Jeff Bridges taking her photograph. So in January we're going to give our visitors a chance to be part of a social media campaign where they can put um, their selfies online. In this case, I really mean selfies. Use your cell phone camera. Um, and so there's some categories that we've come up with, and we're playing with the language a little bit. But So don't press the button. Have somebody else press the button for you, essentially. Um, mirror image, pretty obvious. Take your, your reflection in a mirror, some other um, pane of glass or something. Amuse thy selfie. I thought that was really funny when I came up with that. Uh, is, is kind of that duco uh, du Huron effect of can you use the panorama function to create something weird with your cell phone camera? And that, that's what I did here. I thought that was a really good one. Um, dress it up. So somehow don some aspect of your character like uh, Warren Thompson does and take an image of that. Or maybe Jillian Waring if you want to wear a mask. Um, or just hold up the camera. So taking that, that always known selfie. So the exhibition is on view until April 1st of next year. So if you enjoy it, come back or tell your friends to come. And I'll also be giving two curator-led gallery tours at 1 p.m., one on uh, Thursday, December 21st, and the other on March 10th next year. And you'll have forgotten everything I just told you by then, so you should come back and, uh, and join the tour. Uh, Are you allowing on the selfie thing, the self-selfie thing, for them to use a stick? Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah, you can use a stick. Uh, you probably don't want to put a, like a large format camera on the end of that stick. But yeah, whatever you like. Um, so yeah, with that, um, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have, or we can head down to the gallery. You can take a look at the photos and ask questions down there. So thank you so much for coming today. Do you have a question?